I'd like to start this session by thanking you for coming here to listen to us in such large numbers. Um, so, sorry, are you? We can't hear ourselves. Can you hear? I can hear myself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, welcome to our audience. Welcome to our speakers. Um, I'll introduce them very briefly. I am Alexandra Buchler. Uh, literature across frontiers and uh, we have organized this session because we think that it is um, a topic that's uh, uh, very much in everybody's mind especially where we are uh, across the channel and um, uh, I asked these three authors who come from different parts of Britain um, even originally uh, from different parts of the world uh, to uh, comment on and give us our views on Brexit. Um, we have Bonnie Greer. Uh, Bonnie uh, was born in Chicago. She uh, came to Britain about 30 years ago. Uh, she's a very well-known personality. She's a writer. She's a commentator, playwright. Uh, she has been um, very much on television commenting on Brexit. She has been also uh, connecting the situation in, in, in Britain with uh, Trump's America. And uh, she has been writing for the New European, which is a newspaper that started after the referendum. Um, she also was awarded the Order of the British Empire um, nine years ago for, for services to the arts. Um, and she recently was practically adopted by Ireland for a statement she made um, on television, which she may, she may comment on. Um, so she was kind of handed the keys to all the Irish cities and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, Patrick McGuinness um, is, resides in Wales. His background is a little bit complicated. He's half Belgian, half British. He actually says that he's only one quarter Belgian because his mother uh, is a French-speaking Belgian. And, <laughs> and he uh, is a writer, a poet. Um, he's an academic. He teaches French literature at Oxford University. And he has published <coughs> two collections of poetry and two novels. Um, his work has been quite widely translated into a number of languages, and um, uh, he, lives, he lives in Wales. Um, Jan Carson is from Belfast, from Nor Northern Ireland. She um, is a prose writer. She has published two collections of, of short stories and two novels. Her most recent novel, uh, won the European Union Prize for Literature, and it's called the, the, the Fire Starters. I hope that the authors will also be able to um, talk about their own work, uh, but really the starting point now is, um, is Brexit itself. We, uh, we are now, when we planned, I have to say that when we planned this session, I really had no idea that we would be where we are now. Yet discussing another new deal, uh, facing possible no deal exit. And uh, it's been almost three and a half years since the referendum. Now, the question uh, of the referendum is that yes, there was a referendum, but it was really steeped in 
problems. It was an advisory referendum. It was a referendum that was really mired in fraud, in interference, in voter uh, gerrymandering, I should say, um, because there were large portions of the population who were not allowed to vote and who are most affected by the result. Uh, I could go on about all the problems around the referendum itself. The fact that it was advisory means in legal terms that it cannot be annulled. If it were, if it were um, a legally binding referendum, it probably would have been annulled. So it's, it's highly controversial. And here we are facing the consequences. So uh, my first question really would be to the, to the speakers, what brought us here? What is behind the vote? Uh, Perhaps putting aside the fact that even the percentages are not quite, you know, convincing, of uh, because it's not that half of the country is for and half of the country is against. It's it's um, um, you know 37 percent of voters, 26 percent of the population, etc. So so it's really, but there's something happened with that vote that brought up a sentiment that I honestly was very surprised to, um, you know, to, 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 uh, to be suddenly facing. And uh, so what's, what's behind it? By the way, I live in Britain, I'm not British myself, and uh, I have a German surname, but I'm not German, so this is Europe. We all come from different, you know, different parts, and we engage with other cultures. So, um, Bonnie, your view. Can I just say quickly, can you hear, everyone can hear, because I can't. Okay. Um, um, just to say quickly, um, I'm thinking, and I feel a real solidarity with this city and with all of you. And I was walking with Patrick, who's very kindly took me around. And at the same time, because as a writer, you're always writing. You never stop writing. Maybe you don't do things with your piece of paper and whatever, but you never stop writing because that's who you are. So I was trying to understand what was happening to me when I was walking around and feeling very moved to be here. And I think it's because all of my life, this country has been in two, almost all of my life. I was born a couple of weeks before the Berlin airlift. And so Germany has always been two. And uh, I can remember as a child when JFK came to Berlin, and I can remember when the Berlin Wall went up. I can remember all of those things in my lifetime. And also I can remember coming of age in the 70s. And for us in art, everything came from Germany. The music, the theater, which is my métier, the dance, I can remember seeing uh, Pina Bausch for the first time. All of this was Germany. Even though I can't speak German at all, it was always Germany. And so I feel very moved to be here. And I ask myself, as someone born in an African-American community on the south side of Chicago, my father, my late father, of course, was here during World War II because he was a soldier. Um, what is it? And I think what it is for me is the feeling that to be 
German in the era that I grew up in was also about moving out, all the time moving out and remembering. If you're a German of my generation in a way, I think of the films of Fassbender, there was constant interrogation of the past and constant looking at the present and thinking about the future. And the future was about being in solidarity, being together, always defeating nationalism, always defeating this idea of being separate, always defeating this idea that some people are better than others. This is not to say that Germany is a holy place or that it has even done this. But the questions were always on the table when I was a girl, when I was a young woman. And so Brexit now, I've said to Brexiters, I will give them 100 pounds to their charity if they tell me about what in Europe upsets them enough to vote to leave. They can't do it. And the reason they can't, because it's not about Europe. It is about their own whatever. It's a cauldron, it's become a hole and everything is poured in it. And you, Germans, have learned to take that kind of dangerous situation and look it in the eye. I'm not saying you solved it, you have not, but you can look at it. The United Kingdom can't do it, and that's where we are, where we are. That's my opinion. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Um, well, that, that's a very hard statement to follow from Bonnie, and it's one that I entirely agree with. Um, I was thinking about how we got to where we are, how a basically sane country, or at least no m more insane than any other country, did something absolutely crazy. And it didn't come out of the blue. It comes because for the last 40 or 50 years, the public mind in Britain has been deformed and misshapen by a feral and extremely reactionary press, as well as a large number of um, really filthy politicians, um, often, often quite extreme and often very xenophobic. And one of the problems with Britain is that and I can say this because I'm only, thankfully, half British, is that um, they believe their own myths, okay, in, in an absolutely catastrophic way. They've spent 50 years believing that they won the war. Um, they've spent several centuries believing that they invented democracy. Um, and they are told this, and th there's a series of truths um, to which the British establishment and the British press adheres and pays lip service to. Um, and those truths are, of course, not truths. And I think what happens in, with Brexit is that a country starts to believe the myths that it puts out about itself. The myth is there, in a sense, to aspire to, but most of us don't believe myths are somehow the truth. They mistook a myth of themselves for an actual practical truth of them, um, and it isn't. So what I also feel is that it's been going on for a long time, and anyone who says they didn't see it coming w was just not looking around. Um, and I'll, I'll finish with one very small story, not to elicit your pity, but um, as an example of 
how this anti-Europeanism has been festering for a very long time. Uh, I was brought up in Belgium, in a small Belgian town called Bouillon, and near Luxembourg, near Trier. And when I was nine, I was sent to an English boarding school. <coughs> and um, on my first day in school, I went into my math class and I was asked where I was from. And I said, I'm from Bouillon. Uh, my English wasn't very good at the time. And I said, I'm from Bouillon. And the teacher said, um, where's that? And I said, uh, it's about seven kilometers from the French border. And he was holding a math book and he hit me across the face with it and said, kilometers, what's that in miles? And that it wasn't a rhetorical question either. <laughs> um, and since then, I've had this idea. I mean, these people can't even, a whole strand of, a very powerful strand of British public opinion gets upset by how you measure things, okay? It's that bad. It's pathological. And ever since then, I've had a sense that um, this kind of stuff and things like Brexit come from something very warped, which is at the absolute center of English public discourse. Um, the other thing about going to an English boarding school is that you meet the people who, 40 years later, are running your country. And they're fucking sociopaths, a lot of them. Um, I'm going to stop there for a minute. Thank you for handing me the mic at that point, Patrick. Um, yeah, I'm going to censor the swearing coming out of Patrick. Um, I'm going to nail my cards to the table before I respond to um, what Alexandra asked. I, I am a kind of very complicated person in that I'm a Protestant, Unionist, Northern Irish person who grew up feeling very British, who acquired an Irish passport in January and now calls themselves Irish. Um, so I, I'm in the middle of some kind of a strange emotional, psychological, cultural, I don't know, change into a butterfly, hopefully. Um, and I guess I wanted to answer Alexandra's question in two parts. Um, how did we get to where we are in terms of Northern Ireland? Northern Ireland mostly voted to remain, but within the unionist community, there was quite a strong bent towards leave. And that's the community that I grew up in. Um, but you know, have quite, quite a few issues with some of their politics and theology. Why did they vote to leave? A lot of it comes back to the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. So a lot of the, the unionist Protestants in Northern Ireland feel like a huge part of, the, of, of what was decided there was concessions that they had to make. So they had to, you know, the, the police force was disbanded and made balanced Protestant and Catholic. It was mostly Protestant police officers who lost their jobs. They lost a lot of what they perceived to be their symbols of flags and parades and banners and things. So if you ask some of the working class Protestants that I work with in my community practice, they will tell you quite strongly that it was them that made all the concessions. And it comes back to what Bonnie said about uh, a frustration and an anger with where you are and Europe was an easy target to point at Europe and say this this is the problem things have to change let's do this that that I believe is the root of why those that community mostly voted leave why did we mostly vote remain it also comes back to the Good Friday Agreement which is a slight document and a really pluralistic document and under the terms of Good Friday, the Good Friday Agreement, we were all allowed to have a multiplicity of different identities within the idea of being Northern Irish. 
So I would have said that I was politically British, but culturally Irish. I wanted to be associated with that huge, rich tradition of Irish writing because, let's face it, folks, who wouldn't want to be associated with all of those great writers? And they are much better crack than the English writers. Yeah? Sorry to bring that into the room. Um, so I was comfortable with that. And I think we in Northern Ireland are very comfortable with what it means to have many identities at once. Um, we have a, a very dead but very good writer called John Hewitt who has an excellent quote where he talks about, I am an Ulster man, I am a British man, I am an Irish citizen, I am a European citizen, and I am a citizen of the world. And to undermine any, of one, of, any one of those facets of my identity is to undermine the whole. And we are very comfortable with that in Northern Ireland. And I think that's why the majority of people go to remain. They understand that being a European citizen is, it doesn't compromise whether you are a nationalist or a unionist or a Protestant or a Catholic. It's just another facet of who you are and a wonderful addition to who you are. So I'm gonna end on that note without swearing, Patrick. I think what, what you just said, Jan, um, uh, somebody I know refers to this, um, and it's probably a quote um, from somewhere, refers to this as um, a kind of concentric circles of identity. You can be more than one thing. You can be more than just English. And what we have witnessed is not just a kind of really deep divide now opening up, uh, but um, a shrinking of a country. We, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, uh, there, there are predictions that this is going to lead to uh, the disintegration of the Union. And I'm talking about the, <laughs> the, the uh, United Kingdom. And um, so that's where we are now. And uh, we literally don't know what's going to happen next week. So um, you, uh, Bonnie, you, you, are, you spoke about the question that you want to ask people. And we have been asking it. What are the benefits? What are the benefits for you personally of leaving the EU? And that's the question that never gets an answer. Um, what are the possible benefits of the vote? I'm not saying of Brexit, because I still hope it's not going to happen. Um, Britain has been politicized and uh, in, in a way that I hadn't seen before, perhaps. And um, there is now the largest pro-EU movement in, in, uh, in the EU. We are still in the EU. So there have been some benefits. There has been a lot of political discussion um, and um, you know that may that may lead to something. My question is: Is there any chance of the kind of reconciliation that you refer to? That um, I, uh, I wouldn't say healing, but you know, can can we find a way to uh, to, to speak to the other side really without insulting each other? And can we reach a point where somehow there will be an understanding? And how can culture, I mean, this is a culture war. How can culture, the kind of culture we are involved in, how can it 
how can it help? Is, is it, is it, what's, what can be the impact of what we are doing? Uh, can I say, just to answer that, um, I have been very uh, graciously welcomed by the British. Um, I found a home in the United Kingdom. I found a home in London. I'm a Londoner, that's how I see myself. And the British have been extremely gracious and kind to me and welcoming to me. They are, they are by and large, a wonderful people. And the wonderful thing about the English in particular, who I know more than Scottish or the Welsh or the Irish, is that they have a tendency to live and let live. That's, that's the core of who they are. They're extremely kind. But what has happened to them uh, under the conservative government, particularly since 2010, is they've been stripped of their dignity, they've been stripped of their voice, they've been stripped of the things that they have come to expect as theirs. Their welfare state has been dismantled, um, and a lot of things that they've held on to. And if you live up north, where a lot of this uh, leave action comes from, you can walk down a street and feel that feeling, and then you look across the street at the shop that used to sell cakes when you were a kid, and now you see a Polish bakery, and you stand there, and you think, is that the problem? Is that why I feel so bad? And I don't want to sort of reduce it to that, because it's not psychological. It is, as we've all been saying, a series of things that have been played on by people who really know what's going on. And it's a lot about the European Union cracking down on money laundering, which is about ready to come into force in January. It's a lot about the European Union um, regulating things that need to be regulated, like food and, and rights. They don't like that. So you just bundle it in, and then you put it into a yellow-haired um, um, sort of doll-shaped buffoon called Boris Johnson, and you let him bounce around the country and do this whole sort of Dickens thing for people who've never read Dickens and distract everybody while this other stuff is going on. It's, uh, we're in a dangerous time in the United Kingdom right now because English nationalism has now got its feet. And nationalism, as you all know in your gut, is the most dangerous thing to happen. It's happening in the United States as well. So I always tell people, as a dual national, I go to sleep with a despot with, with straw-colored hair, and I wake up to a despot with straw-colored hair. So it's, it's a horrible thing. I think both Jan and Bonnie have talked about what identity is. Um, and, and how Britain is dealing with its identity crisis, which is what, what is actually happening at the moment, and what Brexit is. When I arrived in Britain, there were things that I felt were part of British identity which we were all quite proud of, like a health service that was free, um, a more or less functioning uh, union of different nations, and so on. And, um, now, I think that I, debates about identity have become very macho, you know. Um, they've become about symbols, the queen, uh, the pound, 
um, anti, anti sort of European immigration and so on. And it's, you know, debates about identity are incredibly important. And I think people have to revisit identity over and over and over. But they can't just go on doing it by defining themselves by what they are against. Otherwise, things go badly wrong. And I suppose the, the changes in Britain that I've seen in the last 35 years or whatever is a country that used to be um, invest its identity in pride in a good free health service and now invests its identity in the pound and a war which the people who actually keep talking about the war never fought in. Um, so you have this absurd situation that um, all the anxi anxieties are still there, but they're being mishandled. And also people are being manipulated by extremely rich um, newspaper owners, politicians, and businessmen who are afraid of Europe precisely because Europe has a way of talking about identity that is transnational. And that scares them. And it scares them because it threatens their power. And you know what Bonnie's just mentioned, workers' rights. The first thing that's going to happen after Brexit, which our optimistic host, Alexandra, still hopes won't happen, is they will start getting rid of all of the things that make a society livable, and they will dismantle the social contract which we used to have and which Britain used to be quite good at. That's the first thing they will do. And because a country that learns to hate in the way that Britain is now learning to hate um, will never run out of enemies. And for the last three and a half years, I've thought to myself, at some point, people are going to realize they were wrong, they were lied to. They haven't yet, and they won't. Um, and German history tells us that too, I think. Um, you keep thinking people will see sense, and they will start making a connection between the vote and Brexit and the deterioration of their lives. They won't. They won't make it correctly. So that's why I'm um, really pessimistic as well as sad and angry, but I'm, I won't swear again. I guess um, I wanted to talk a little bit in response to Alexandra's question about um, how we use language and how we use rhetoric around a debate like this. Um, I guess I have just become more and more frustrated with um, what has happened to political rhetoric in the last five years, that it seems to have been reduced to some people standing in one corner of the room say, shouting, I'm right, you're wrong, while someone sits in the other corner and shouts, no, I'm right, you're wrong. There's very little listening, there's very little space to engage, there's very little attempts at empathy. And I don't know if, if you're like me, but nobody has ever shouted me into changing my mind about anything. It's not how you change people's minds, and it's certainly not how you change an entire community or a nation's way of going at things. Um, and so like, I would like to make a big, big, big case for the importance of the arts. Um, I've been a community arts worker in Northern Ireland for 20 years. Um, I turned 18 one month before the Good Friday Peace Agreement was signed. And one of the huge things that has brought our country forward and helped people to listen to each other and engage with both sides of the debate has been the arts. Because when you grow up in a country that is obsessed with binaryisms, Protestant, Catholic, nationalist, just, um, unionist, us, them, 
we see everything in terms of black and whites and we have very little ability to empathy or learn how to think objectively or debate or even listen. And what the arts does is it teaches people those skills. It says you're gonna go to a play and you're gonna have an opinion about it. And the opinion might not be right or wrong, but it's creating in your mind this ability to think critically and to think empathetically. Um, and over the last um, 1,000 days, since our government fell apart in Northern Ireland, the arts budget has been hacked to pieces. So a lot of that fantastic community arts engagement, which was actually an integral part of the peace and reconciliation process, has gone. It's just not there. So it, it doesn't surprise me that people are retreating into these binary corners of yelling at each other again. So I think, you know, when Alexandra says, how do we frame this conversation? I think the artists and the community artists have to play an integral part in teaching us how to, how to use language properly around this debate. You know, um, Patrick and Jan have done something for me just now that I'm grappling with and I don't know quite how to say it, but I'll try because I feel like I can here. Uh, all of my books are uh, being released by Audible and Audible UK in December, and I've just done a series called In Search of Black History for Audible. And, you know, when you do things, when you write books, especially when you've written them for, not written them for a long time, and they haven't been multi-reviewed, there's something you don't know about your own work. You just don't know. You don't know why you write. You just write. Sometimes, and I think all the time, the writing tells you what you're doing. You're the first reader of your work, and sometimes the last person to understand your work. And so I'm revisiting my work, some of it 20 years old. And what I realized that all of my life, I've questioned identity. And in my generation, we were very, and are very identity-orientated. So, my generation created African Americans. My generation created feminism. My generation created black woman. My generation created all of those tropes. What's happening now with people, and I adore them, Generation, um, uh, generation X and Generation Z, they're throwing that all out the window. I mean, my role model is Willow Smith. If I get to grow up to be her, I will be really, really happy. So I'm questioning now all of those tropes at this point in my life. I know what I am because I am uh, the daughter of a, a sharecropper. I am descended from African slaves. I am born in the United States. I don't know if these things are useful in the world anymore, or if they're useful to me. Now, I don't know what I mean by that, but I think we are now in too much of an identity packet. I think we're doing it a little bit too much. Now, I don't know what I mean again by that, because if I say I am a black woman, which I am, what does that exclude me from? I was at a table, a guy tweeted me and said he was at a table 
and a bunch of young black people were talking about something, and he leaned over, this guy was white, and he leaned over and said, hey guys, I can help you with this. And they turned to him and they said, we don't need any white mansplaining. Now, A, they lost some information. They lost some valuable information. Two, I know where they're coming from, but three, they lost some valuable information. I think we're in a bad space there. I have an, I have an American and I have a British passport, but I am fucking more than that. And I want to be able now toward this part of my life to proceed in a world where I can redefine myself, redefine the people around me, redefine younger people who are redefining themselves gender-wise and everything else. I want to make a path for them because I think they're on the right track. I think they're right. I think they're going to make this world better because they're right. And what we have to do is get out of our boxes, wherever those boxes are, especially toward the end of your life. If we can do it, let's get out so they can save this fucking planet. And that's how I feel. Thank you, Bonnie, for this impassioned. <laughs> Um, where to now? Uh, uh, Patrick, you spoke about the, the media and we have, we have actually witnessed something that, um, uh, you know, is, uh, it, it was a kind of diminishing of language, misuse of language. Uh, we faced daily, in the run-up to the referendum, we faced daily propaganda from uh, mainstream me media. Since the referendum, people have been actually questioning even the impartiality of the you know, national broadcaster, the BBC. So um, that's one side of um, the situation. Uh, we also have, uh, have been looking at a kind of um, growing number of books that have been written which are, res are really a response to uh, what's happening, a response to Brexit. There is a kind of Brexit literature now. There are some titles that we could all point to. Um, how, can, how, can, how can writers restore language? How can you mention, Jan, um, the, uh, the role of community artists and you have been working in this field. I didn't mention it when I introduce you, but um, d d can, you, can you expand on this a little bit? Can I elaborate on how, how uh, uh, community artists or how writers who work with, uh, in the community the way you do uh, can somehow bring a change? And a ch by a change, I mean uh, understanding of, a better understanding of, of, of each other's views. Um, because what we've witnessed uh, so far is that there's a lot of opinion around which is not evidence-based, it's not fact-based. Actually, the people who are now in government were the ones who were lying in the uh, run-up to the referendum because they were leaders of the Leave campaign and they haven't been held to account for that. Um, so, uh, 
you know, we have a situation where opinion is everything. You don't have to be, uh, you know, we, we, are, we are sick of experts. We don't need facts. So how, how can writers? Um, okay, I will tell two stories very, very quickly. One is not about me and one will be about me because I like to talk about myself. Um, so I have just spent three months working on a community arts project in West Belfast with the um, Shankill Road and the Falls Road, which if anyone knows anything about Northern Ireland politics, they were two very contentious separate areas. There is still a giant peace wall, the most ironic name for a dividing wall in the world. There's still a giant peace wall that runs between these areas, separating them. Um, and the Irish Writers' Centre had me spend about three months with elderly ladies from the Protestant side and the Catholic side. And they wanted me to write together, get them together to write about their experiences of this area. And the, the project we decided to, to do was called the Museum of Me. So we would create a fictional museum where they would put in artifacts every week and write about them. Important places, important people, important anecdotes. And we did that for 12 weeks, meeting every, every week together, literally crossing the peace line, um, drinking a lot of tea, eating a lot of cake. And on the last week, they said to me, I don't think we, this should be called the Museum of Me. I think it should be called the Museum of Us. And that was a hugely powerful statement because those are women in their 70s and 80s who had never listened to their neighbors who live at the end of the street. And we're terrified of them, of, of what those communities did and stood for and believed. And just 12 weeks in a room together with some Kit Kats, and suddenly they were actually realizing they had a lot more in common than difference. So that is the, the microcosm of it. The microcosm is, in 1996, at 16 years old, I was sent to a course called How to Convert the Catholic Child, where me from a Presbyterian background would learn how to refute Catholic heresy. Um, folks, I'm turning 40 next week, and I do not, I, I actually think Catholics might be Christians now, and they don't need to be converted. What changed in the 20 years in between? It definitely wasn't anything coming from home or church or theology. It was a membership that I took to the Art House Cinema in Belfast for three times a week for 20 years. I have watched movies about other people's experiences from around the world. And I've learned about difference. And I've learned that we, I have more in common with people than I have in, in difference with them. So if a hardcore Presbyterian can change in 20 years, then there's hope for all of us. Um, and that, that's the arts. That's a very encouraging story. That's great. Um, I, th I, I agree entirely with that, to the extent that all of the, all of the worst f forces in the modern world, just like in the ancient world too, that is to say the media, the politicians, um, and so on, what they want is to kill off curiosity. They want to stop people wondering stuff. They want to stop them asking about how their neighbors are doing or what their neighbors like to eat or where their neighbors go on holiday um, or what the people down the road do in the evenings. When you kill curiosity, you kill um, 
public discourse and you kill also the imagination and you, you also kill off many potentially very good, happy, fulfilling ways of living. Um, my children, for instance, are, are baffled that people might actively vote to stop themselves and their children and their grandchildren from having the chance to work abroad and to go abroad and so on. Um, they don't understand that. And actually, after the Brexit vote, my daughter was crying. She was 11. Um, because she thought it meant that she wouldn't be able to go and work in Belgium with her cousins and see them and so on. So we also imagine that this stuff is theoretical for children or that they don't really realize it. They're curious, they're full of ideas, they're full of plans. And all of those things are being crushed by the Brexit machine, not just the actual bre machine that will deliver Brexit, but the whole um, attendant psychology that they want us to have. They want us to lose our curiosity, to stop asking about others, to stop thinking about other lives than the one we've got. Because people who see less and think less and ask fewer questions are the ideal political subjects of shitty governments and shitty press, unfortunately. And, and if art has a role, so there is the art that that Jan is talking about that is practical, that actually changes the way people think by showing them paradoxically how other people also think. So that, that's one way of doing it. The other way, I think, is what Flaubert says, which is, you know, Flaubert was pretty pessimistic. He says, you know, you, you can't change people. You can only know them. And that is the job of the novelist. And I think... There are some things that, that art and literature and creativity can do that are absolutely direct, that are transformative, like community arts projects. But I also think that the right kind of literature can just keep us in a state where we are at least knowing ourselves and knowing what people are like and in that way expanding our horizons. I'm not sure you can change people, um, but we can know them better. and, and um, the problem with the Brexit debate, of course, is that it has made us so polarized that we don't even know the opposition anymore. We don't speak. We never see each other. We avoid each other. It's, um, it, it's a big psychological effect upon us, as well as a political one. And I think it'll take generations to get rid to iron out again. Can I, can I say something really quickly in, in, in praise of science? Because I hate professional culture, and I'm always sort of running away from it, uh, even though I'm with Audible now, as I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, I, I sort of always kind of run away from it. And um, we all do something called, uh, I hope I'm getting this right, combinatory play, which is what Einstein used to discover uh, the, uh, his theory of relativity. And we all do it as children. And then we get educated out of it, because that's part of what education is. We start specializing. And a specialist is the worst person on earth, okay? So we're specializing all the time, specializing all the time. You go and get your degree with a bunch of people who have specialized, and you actually can't get your, your master's or PhD unless that person who is awarding it to you recognizes what you're saying, which means They've specialized, they've specialized, okay. 
One of the things I like about physics, theoretical physics, is that it's, it's all about dreaming. It's all about speculating. A really good theoretical physicist always says to you, I'm not sure, but I think this is right. I'm not sure, but I, uh, politicians always say this is right. Sometimes artists always say this is right. But theoretical physicists never, ever does. They say, no, 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 I, I think this is right. Uh, this is my idea. And to talk about relationship. A photon doesn't exist unless it's in relationship to another. They don't exist. They don't exist alone. We can't see them. We can't see a quantum alone. We can't see it. But we see it when suddenly it comes into relationship to us or to each other. And then it does this thing called a quantum leap. And it becomes real for just a couple of seconds. And what that teaches me is that maybe we don't exist until we are in relationship to each other. Maybe we don't know the world unless we know the other. Maybe we are not who we are unless like that beautiful little thing, we reach out like this and then we do this leap. And what Brexit does is tell a lie about the world. Brexit tells a lie about reality. Brexit tells a lie about how we work and are. We work and exist in relationship. We, the only reason we know we're in this room together, logically, is that somebody can put a machine up or a computer and can track our breathing or our whatever. And we know we're here because we're with each other. It's about relationship and it's about reaching out. This is not an American like greeting card thing. It's real, so thank you. Thank you. We now have, I wish we had more time because there's so much to say, but uh, we have now 10 minutes for questions. I'd like to open up the session to the, to the floor. Are there any questions? And uh, of course, because we have interpreting, you're welcome to, to ask in German as well as in English. Any questions? Excuse me, you need a microphone. Yeah. What are we going to do post-Brexit? We are already in it. Well, Brexit has created a strange new temporal zone, which is both pre- and post-Brexit, isn't it? In the sense that nothing has yet happened, but everything has changed. So it's... You think we're in it? Yeah, we, 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 we're in it because we're talking about it. We're already in it. See, the people, it's like when the sun goes out, we won't know that we're dead for about how many minutes does it take? Well, so it's already happened. And what literature and paintings and music and science can tell us is that it's already happened, people, so now we gotta get ready for the new age. I don't mean politically, the whole feeling of it has already happened, so I don't know politically. Can I, um, somebody asked me this very question like not, not too many minutes ago, and I think, yes, there's going to be all sorts of very physical repercussions around the economy and culture and, um, you know, how, how society is held together. But I think we also need to be very careful about ourselves as human beings because hope has taken a huge knock in the last few years. Um, and I, I guess 
a lot of it is thinking about how we do do all of that stuff that can sound like a fridge magnet truism, but is really, really important that Bonnie has been talking about, which is supporting each other. And just realizing that the, the whole of a nation is going to go through a kind of very fragile moment. It won't just be one person. We're all going to go through it at the same time. So how do we look out for each other? How do we be gracious with each other? Grace is a word that I think has fallen out of fashion, but grace is a really important word at the minute. So listening, um, giving people the benefit of the doubt, being there to support each other, because I think people are going to be pretty fragile. I, th I think the other thing that everyone forgets is that once Brexit happens and they sign their deals, it's the beginning of another 15 or 20 years of signing more deals. And the big lie, of course, is that there will be an end to it. There will be no end to it. And we're going to have to reinvent and restart so many of the things that we love and value about our country from scratch. The National Health Service, that's going to go in some form or other. Um, everything is going to be privatized within an inch of its life. And it'll just be constant. I mean, after Brexit, it'll get even worse than Brexit, if you can imagine that. Wait for the mic. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we need, yes, we need the mic. The question that I have the whole time by uh, looking question. at the Brexit, what I'm doing also in TV and looking for uh, the, uh, the polit political discussion. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, the question that I have is, while uh, looking at the Brexit the whole time long, uh, we heard and we found out that um, this was a big betrayal. It was a lie. There, there was wrong uh, numbers and everybody knows it's done by computer and it, it was, it's a trick. And also these people that voted for leave, don't they listen, don't they understand or don't they believe? And is it so simple that they think that what we say, the Remainers, uh, is a lie? I mean, it's obvious that, that it was a lie before. It's a betrayal. The numbers are wrong. Everything was wrong. So that I would like to know. You know, never underestimate, I, I don't, how much people need entertainment and change. Mm. You know, so they'll put it in anything. I mean, I had friends of mine who are African-American, who know better, who voted for Donald Trump. And do you know why they did it? They wanted to see what was going to happen. And look, th that may seem absurd. That may seem crazy. And, and they regretted it. But people, sometimes people just want to change. They want to blow, they want to blow the world up. And there are people out there, that's what they want to do. And now we can sit here and be really rational about it and think, oh my God, there are people that's, that, that's all they want. And you, can, and you know that there are people who set fire to houses and set fire to things and torture, you know, because they just wanna see what happens. So if you put that in a, in a culture which is felt locked in, as we've been saying, bored, abused, they want change. And this is a change. It's not rational. A lot of it isn't. And even if they know that it was a lie. That, hey, you know, as I'm saying, it's, I call it the Thelma and Louise Brexit. You know, you just get in that car and drive toward that cliff. And maybe, maybe you'll go to glory and maybe you won't. But some people are willing to ch take the chance. So they're gambling. Yeah. Can, I, can I also say, like, 
we do the rounds of book festivals and events like this and very rarely do we meet anyone who thinks radically different from us because you guys are mostly liberal, educated, well-traveled, well-read individuals. And I, I got a real shock on the morning after the referendum because I realized that 99.9% .9 of people on my social media feeds thought exactly the same way as me and were devastated. And for me, that was a wake-up call that my social circle is really polarized and we need to make sure that we are not talking about people, but we're actually talking to them. And it comes back to what Bonnie said right at the start. These are people who are frustrated and we're looking for a way to fix their frustration. We need to go back and address the frustration as well because that frustration's legitimate. thing in America called Flyover America. I grew up in Chicago. I lived in New York. My family lives in LA. There's a whole country in between where people like me fly over the country. It's called Flyover. And those people are suffering. They're pissed off. They look at people like me getting on television and they figure, why can't I get on television? I got something to say. And those are the people who say, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to do something to fuck you up. And that's what they did. And we need to turn around and stop thinking they're stupid or they don't know what they're doing or they're insane and stand up there and say, I hear what you're saying. Let's dialogue, mate, okay? Because they're not being heard. They're not heard. I, I think that's the, po the point about the lies is, um, is an important one. People don't, a lot of people don't any longer care that they were lied to. They know they were lied to and they don't care. And they know that they are also, their lives are basically at the mercy of these reactionary nihilists, which is what people like Trump and Boris Johnson are. Um, and you try to tell people the truth because we think that the truth will set us free. But it, it might do, but um, not if people don't actually want to hear it. People are so angry and so unhappy and I have had conversations with people who were lied to, and they will actually say, yeah, I know I was lied to. I know it'll make me poorer. I never believed any of that stuff about how we'd have control over this, that, and the other. Um, it's a new mood, actually, and it's very difficult for um, progressive politics to deal with. That's why the left and the kind of progressive center constantly loses the culture war at the moment. I think. Oh, yeah. So, um, Bonnie wants me to tell you about Extinction Rebellion yesterday in London. Um, so, as we were trying to, as we were leaving London, um, the Extinction Rebellion people, um, you may have read about this, stopped um, the underground and the buses and so on. And they were basically um, attacked by ordinary commuters going to work. Um, and Aslev, the transport union, said, you know, if you're going to go on strike and stop ordinary people from going to work, ordinary people with not very much money who get penalized don't get paid if they get to work late, they lose an hour's pay and so on and so forth. Don't do that. Go to the places that um, are really causing all of the problems. And I kind of think that the left, the you know, the, the progressive center, whatever we want to think of ourselves, 
we don't even know where the target is anymore. We're so badly screwed up. We've been so radically outplayed. Um, and I think there are solutions, but um, they're hard ones, and it's going to take a long time. We'll, we'll have to draw this to an end. We have time for one more question, which will require a short answer, please. Um, you were talking most of the time of these people who sort of uh, want to get out of the EU, etc. What I always was wondering is, in the 60s, they told me uh, when I was uh, learning English, the English are always very polite people. If you stand in row uh, f with, the, uh, with the bus or so, and you stand in row and you wait, and the bus may come or not, but you are polite people. What about the unpoliteness or the anger of those people now who would want to stay in the EU? I, I'm really wondering, in France, you had seen the protests of the yellow, yellow crossed people and their anger against Macron, etc. What about the anger of these maybe 50% of the people who would really want to stay within the EU? I cannot see it. I am even wondering why they are not now, before Saturday the parliament comes together. If it is so that people in the end in a democracy are the last and first address concerning the question where do we want to go, where are they that they do not sort of go on the streets once more in millions to say, no, we do not want to escape from the EU or so we want to stay in. Where are they? Why are they not? Why is can there? Can we have to do short answers, so I'm going to answer that. If someone always asks me, why are Remainers in the street? Why aren't they screaming? Why aren't they doing this? Why are the people who are against Gilets jaunes violence? I, I think the Gilets jaunes are right but I don't believe in the burning up stuff. My answer is this. You know what the first words you learn when you're two and you can actually talk? No. 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 And Brexit is a big, fat no. And that's all they're saying, and we don't have the answer to no. Thank you very much. Thank you to the speakers. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, there's much more to say. And we'll just continue discussing. And we'll see what happens in the next few days. Thank you.